in God's Word, the book of Romans, chapter 1. Romans, chapter 1, I'll be reading verses 20, focusing along verses 22 through at least the verses 24 and 25 as we uh, even continue to unfold this uh, understanding that Paul is giving as to why it is that justification can only be by faith, because sinful man rebel. There is no natural man that seeks salvation in the way that God has prescribed. For, Paul writes, beginning in verse 24, the indivisible things of him, that is, his eternal power and Godhead, are seen by the creation of the world, being considered in his works to the intent that they should be without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful but became vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was full of darkness. When they professed themselves to be wise, they became fools. For they turned the glory of the incorruptible God into the similitude or likeness of the image of a corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed beasts and of creeping things. Wherefore also God gave them up to their heart's lusts unto uncleanness to defile their own bodies between themselves which turned the truth of God unto a lie. And worshipped and served the creature, forsaking the creator which is blessed forever. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy and infallible word. Lord, we come to you this morning. And our, lang- our, our, our intention, our hope, our desire is that our hearts might be transformed by your word. That we might not remain in folly and unbelief. That we might not remain in immaturity, always drinking milk, but that we might move on to meat. Not because we are intellectually superior to our neighbor, be they saint or sinner. Though you have called us to know your word, our longing is not only for an orthodox faith, but a heart that is alive and burning by your Holy Spirit. And so give us hearts of fire this morning. Give us minds conformed to the pattern of your word. And that by the preaching of your word, Lord, that we might be transformed and made more like you in every way. We ask that you would do this all by the work of your spirit as he has been sent out to be our teacher. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, In C.S. Lewis's wonderful work, The Weight of Glory, in which in the first chapter he is endeavoring to show the vast difference between the calling that God would have us embrace as those who are made in his image and that which we choose because of our sinfulness and how it is we bear the image of God and that image of God that we bear in our bodies and our souls testifies to us and against us the true nature and extent of our rebellion. You know this 
section taken from the first chapter, you probably know it well, as he speaks of the absurdity of our rejection of God's lordship over our lives. It would seem, Lewis writes, that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, Lewis is certainly touching on the psychology, as it were, of the act of our rejection of a life with God that brings satisfaction and peace. Now, that offer does not come in nature. There is nothing in natural law or natural revelation that says Christ has died for sinners. That comes only by the word. And so we divide the revelation of God into two categories. Both are perfect in their expression to us. Natural, or maybe you might say general revelation. The stars, the sky, the mountains, creation that Paul speaks of here. And what natural revelation has the capacity to do is accuse us that we are rebels in light of God's glory, his existence, our being made by him and for him, and it is inescapable. Special relevate. Oh my goodness gracious. It's going to be this way all morning, isn't it? That's not even a word. Relevation. Revelation. <laughs> Revelation is the scriptures which are for us, as we do confess, the only infallible rule for faith and practice. So that every decision you will ever make, the scripture speaks something to that. Maybe not directly, indirectly. It provides for us paths of wisdom. We are to be nurtured in that wisdom. We are to uh, seek the counsel of those who have studied the word. The word is the only infallible rule for faith and practice. That is not the revelation whew, that Paul is talking about here. He's talking about those invisible things, verse 20. And though they are invisible to our eyes, they are very known to our hearts. He speaks of eternal power, Godhead that are seen in creation. And that we are to consider those things. And we cannot help but consider them. And the reason for that here, Paul says, is to bring all men to an awareness of their sinfulness of their rebellion, of the wrath of God. And yet man continues not to live in light of that properly, for even then they cannot, for they are slaves to sin. They are stuck under the law. And because they are creatures of wrath by nature, in light of the coming perfect revelation of God, they must reject it they must hide from it. They must suppress it. They must go in a closet and shut the door. Except that it is not only light, it is noise, isn't it? The light of God is not a silent light. And so they must plug up their ears. 
They must say then that this is not evil to run, to exchange. But they have to label their rebellion as something that satisfies. And so they call it good. They call their evil good. They call darkness light. And in this we see the full extent of the folly of those who call themselves wise. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. I don't want to talk about the judgment yet. It's coming. What I want us to see as those who are endeavoring to adopt and engage with and understand and receive the wisdom of God that there are those who do not. And when you reject the wisdom of God, you are by definition necessarily a fool. And so I'm going to talk about the wisdom of fools. Two points that I want to make. When a fool professes wisdom, when a fool professes wisdom, and then I want to talk about the quality of those people buried deep. They are buried deep in folly and blindness. And so let's take that first point up now. When a fool professes wisdom. Now, I want us to understand again why. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. And there's truth to that. Why would we seek the life of a Christian disciple if it means suffering? Why would we seek the life of Christian discipleship if he tells us not to commit adultery, not to lie, not to steal, not to bear false witness, when everything in our hearts wants to do what? Beg, borrow, steal, lust, take what is not ours, establish a kingdom for our own pleasure and power and wealth. And if you do not think that that's the kind of person that you wrestle against, even as a Christian in whom the Holy Spirit resides, and especially if you are not, you're fooling yourselves. Do not be surprised when your godly neighbor is angry or lusts or wants that new car that you had a little too much. For we struggle. We struggle against the old man. But this act of suppressing and exchanging, of developing systems of morality that cover and that push down, like the beach ball analogy that I gave, the wisdom and righteousness of God is not left only to philosophers and religious leaders. In fact, this is what Calvin says. For it was not peculiar to the philosophers to suppose themselves wise in the knowledge of God. But it was equally common to all nations and to all ranks of men. Your children do this. There were indeed none who sought not to form some ideas of the majesty of God and to make him such a God as they could conceive him to be according to their own reason. You've heard of the sandbox game genre. It's very popular now. But you can fit a lot of information either on a disc or a hard drive. And all of that data is expressed visually. And the promise is you can do whatever you want within the boundaries of this particular in-game universe. And you can make worlds. And it, it satisfies something of the wickedness of the human heart so that you can log on, boot the game up, 
control the avatar. You can walk up to a woman who exists only in bits and bites and punch her in the face. But that act is not a moral act that exists in a vacuum. Why would you do that in the first place? Parents, have you ever wondered at times, as you are growing these little image bearers, why your children might be so cruel to one another? How could you do that? I remember expressing such a sentiment to my own mother. And my mother looked at me with that sly smile and says, I remember when you did that. Oh, no, I don't remember. I remember the time I pushed my sister over one of her baby bassinets. So angry. I would have liked to think she had it coming. She did not. And as soon as she fell over, she began to scream. And at that point, I knew that the wrath of God revealed against unrighteousness is coming up the stairs. (laughs) And he is bringing with him his discipline. And I said, the devil made me do it. He said, I don't ever want to hear you say those words again. And that's the thing I actually got in the biggest trouble for. What was I endeavoring to do? The woman you gave me, the serpent told me, when we are caught in our sin, our first reflex as natural man is to do what? Find a way to couch our bad decisions in some kind of moral worldview or philosophy in which those decisions made sense and we are justified in our bad behavior. And when we do that, when we do not call what the thing is according to the terms that God calls it, we exchange the wisdom of God for folly. And there is always and always has been since the fall a showdown between the power, the validity, the beauty of God's wisdom and man's. Now, let's go back and see an illustration. When Moses and his brother Aaron go before the Pharaoh in the very beginning, Moses says to the Pharaoh, on behalf of God, I tell you, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, make me. Make me do it. You show me why I should let 1.6 million workers go. And in this, Pharaoh was acting as the seed of the serpent. He was the man against the power of God displayed on earth. And so as a show of initial power and that God meant business, Aaron threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent. And by some strange demonic power, the wise men of Egypt did the same. But what happened? Aaron's staff ate their staffs. His serpent devoured the others. And then from that point on, there was a series of plagues in which God, through his servant Moses, on behalf of Israel, was humiliating the religious system of Egypt, finally in the plague that brought death to the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh being 
the incarnation of the high God of Egypt, the Messiah, according to the Egyptians. And all of the wise men of Egypt could do nothing to turn the Nile back into water, to get rid of the, uh, the frogs, to, to, to make the sun appear again, the boils to go away. When we look at the West today and we lament of the degradation of our culture, of the moral fabric of society, of what is happening to our neighbors, of the murder and the theft and the suicide and the chaos of our identity, it is Egypt. It is the same product of the same wretched exercise. It is to take the true God off the throne of heaven and earth and to say, I will take my turn ruling and reigning. And so men rebel because they do not like the idea of God's righteousness, his wrath revealed against them. And the way they do it, because they are image bearers, is they establish religious structures, philosophies, systems that do not require God to be there or that mask his presence. You've heard of those, sometimes you get the night job. You've heard of the shades or the curtains that are supposed to block out all light. That is what it is. They are those shades that they hang to hope to be dwellers in the darkness. But because they cannot escape the light of God that shines from within, as it were, that internal testimony of God's presence and his wrath, they are constantly doing things to themselves in order to reshape their own image. How does a man Get to the point where he alters his very physical makeup in order to consider it an offering to a God. Because it's here. You remember the crazed painter who cuts his ear off but he could not stop hearing the voices in his head. He was crazed. <laughs> Why? What would cause a man... To go before a metal god and to take a knife and to begin to cut himself. Or even our own father in the faith of sorts, Martin Luther, prior to his coming to understand the righteousness of God revealed against ungodliness is not only judgment, but it is the person and work of Jesus Christ, as Paul later advances to in Romans 8. And Luther would sit in his quarters in his monastery and he would take a kind of leather whip, and whenever he would have a, a lustful or impure or stray thought, he would hit himself with that thing. Why? Because there was no relief to his irreligion, to his guilt. And so he thought, this is a good idea. But what did it accomplish? It accomplished nothing. We are hopelessly religious. We are inescapably religious. And so the way men invent a system that is not the true system is by 
a corrupt facsimile. They take the copy machine of their own wills, they smear Vaseline all over the glass, and then they take a copy of the thing that God has made known to them. And what they get, or maybe they twist it while the the little light is, you've ever seen that? It has to stay still. It's twisted, and when it comes out, it's this mutated, unevolved, it's Gollum. Right? As he clings fast to that one ring, he was once a hobbit. But through the practice of a corrupt religion and being held fast by this corrupt desire, it transformed him over a period of hundreds of years into this disgusting, wriggling, horrid thing who talked to himself. Is it no wonder that when Christ cast out the demons, they were not singular, but they were a multitude? Is this not the pattern of unrighteousness, that of misery-loving company? And so when the world says, let us, let us build for ourselves a tower to heaven, they're not just saying, we're content with you not giving your approval. What they really want is what? They want you to build with them. They want you to be okay with the things that they are endeavoring to do. And they are entering into corporate public society with their foolish religion. And they are saying, it's this or nothing. For is that not what God is saying? The difference is what? God has the authority, the wisdom, the power to say, worship me alone. Man has not such a power or privilege or authority. And so what then is man doing when he professes this wisdom? Verse 22, when they profess themselves to be wise, it is when they said, we know what we are doing. We know which way to go. We know, we know, we know. We know how to establish our lives of of benefit and blessing. That is when they became fools. When they exchanged, suppressed and exchanged. He is letting go. He is, right, unshackling himself from the authority of God. Let us say together, God is dead and who killed him? We killed him. Man killed him. We killed God, right? This was the spirit of the French Revolution. Nothing to do with a righteous overthrow of unrighteous authority. But what? A kind of socialistic, man-centered, secular, hedonistic revolution against order. Whose order? The divine order. And so man places his thoughts, his desires, and his longings above the clear call to worship and honor Yahweh as God. And when man does that... He becomes a fool. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes elsewhere, verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool, that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, 
He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain. And so the sinfulness of this sin, that is, what this sin is comprised of, is first the rejection of the worship of God, the suppression of God's wrath and rebellion against that lack of piety, this rebellion being worshiping of something else other than God. And then the way that men justify or excuse their rebellion is to promote their rebellion as, in fact, not foolish or rebellious, but as better, as greater than, truer than, more sincere than, because, after all, it's what? It's mine. It's my truth. It's my precious And so when a sinful man says, I am wise, he must be doing something actively in open rebellion against God. Because only a fool would say such a thing. And so he leaves aside the reception and the building and the contributing of being fruitful and multiplying under the authority of God. And he says, I'm going to leave that house that is built upon the rock of Christ Jesus and I'm going to go make this house of cards built upon the sand. That is a wise fool. Secondly, they've buried deep, or they are buried deep in folly and blindness. We're not talking about moral neutrality. One system that's as good as another. Because they don't exchange one truth for another truth. In fact, what does he say? Verse 23, for they turned the glory of the incorruptible God to the similitude. It's a fancy word that means likeness. Of the image of a corruptible man and of birds, four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. Have you seen the statue of the winged goddess? I think it's somewhere in one of these big cities, maybe New York. It is quite literally an ancient pagan idol. And I'm not sure, it would be an act of civil disobedience, I'm not sure if it would be an act of sin to back over that thing. I know some people who probably do it not even meaning to. (laughs) I don't want to drive through New York. And this thing is erected, do you know what to celebrate? Women's health. You know what is actually there to celebrate? The pride of the murder of countless known millions of unborn children. That's women's health today. What is men's health? You should become like a woman. We are obsessed. We are obsessed with what? Why is that the case? Because we are obsessed with shaping every facet of the way that we are brought into the world, how we live when we're in the world, and when we will be out of this world. It is therefore no accident that we are also a culture that is obsessed with euthanasia. If we have the liberty to say whether or not a person, a human is a person, we are also able to, at the beginning of their life, we should be in charge of that at the end of their life. When does a person lose enough faculty to no longer be considered a person? I know some teenagers that lose their minds enough to where you might say, maybe 
Just maybe, if this is the standard. (laughs) Do you understand? Every single false religion is a twisted and corrupted image of the thing that God has given us that is true and good and beautiful. What we are doing is not exchanging one truth for another. We are exchanging the glory of God for that which does have glory. The Bible speaks of the glory of the earth, the glory of man, the glory of creation. But it is not a glory that is like the glory of God. And what do we do? We shove it. We put a square peg into a round hole and we say, this will do for now. The problem is what? It makes us mad. It turns us into beasts. If Nebuchadnezzar is not enough of a warning, why was Nebuchadnezzar turned into an animal of sorts? Like the beast. I always think of Beauty and the Beast, that beast in that old animated film. Part man, part savage. Because he exalted himself and said, I am greater even than the God of heaven. And God said, boop, no you're not. And his nails grew out long. And his hair grew. And he went out into the forest and he lived like an animal. We have a lot of animals in this country running around in suits, don't we? They have already been given over. They even lack the power of speech. And by that I mean they just can't speak English. They say things like, a child is not a person until they are contributing to society. When does that happen? And what is a contribution? I know that, and listen, you say, well, we're not talking about, I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about morality. I'm talking about, and I would talk about politics happily. I'm talking about the way we live. How can a man kill another man? How did Cain come to the point where he killed his own brother? Because he's exchanged the truth of God for a lie. He was given over to the folly and the madness of his sin. Four-footed beasts? Birds? My children know. This is so silly. You see none of those images in church, do you? In fact, there are no images at all. Why? Because they have nothing to do with the worship of the true God. Because he cannot be put into an image. And so therefore a fool who professes wisdom by denying God's wisdom or revelation shows his blindness and he earns that special judgment of then being given over. Now we'll expand, I'll expand on this next week, the extent of that judgment. And we see it everywhere. But when a fool that does not worship and honor God as God, but rather casts off the glory of God for the glory of the creature, what he is doing is he is taking, as I've said, God off the throne of heaven and earth and of his own life, and he places something else, his own invention. But every God requires what? Sacrifice, atonement, appeasement, obedience, allegiance. 
And what are men notorious at not dispensing with when they have been disobeyed? Grace. Redemption. And so the false gods of this earth, especially the secular gods of today, not only do they not have the power to grant redemption, they don't have the will or desire to grant redemption. This is what canceling is, is it not? It is a facsimile of what? The propitiation of God. You've been canceled. And you've got to sit in, whatever, social media jail for a certain time. You've got to go do this certain apology campaign. But there's no redemption. It's what? Only what? Conformity. You must join the Borg. You must assimilate. And you must never transgress again by thought, word, or deed. But it is not a just law. It is not a good law. It is madness. For it shifts as much as the desires and intentions and lusts and corrupted nature of man shifts. Spurgeon writes, It is very easy to make a beast of yourself when you have made a beast to be your God. As the Egyptians did when they worshipped the God they had made in the form of an ox or a crocodile or a cat. Who gets affected the most? The immature and the young. There are schools in America that put litter boxes in the bathrooms because they're kids that go to school and they pretend to be cats. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. But is this any different than if the boy shows up wearing a dress professing to be a woman? No, not one bit. Or that you can look at a sonogram and say that being that is made by God that has a soul that will live forever is anything other than an image bearer of God. This is what happens when we remove from our lives, from the very center of our lives, the standard of God's word. Tonight in the book of Proverbs, I'm going to talk about the fount that is the heart of man. And how this organ, our mouths, simply serves what is in our heart. We speak out of the overflow of our heart. We worship out of the overflow of our heart. Everything we do, our bodies, our parts, our passions, all come from this. Not our organ, but our wills, our desires, our longing. And when you have consciously embraced, which all men have, the rebellion of idolatry, forsaking the wisdom and revelation of God, this is what you end up with at some point. And so here there are my exhortations. Do not be fooled by the folly of the world professing to be wise. Do not feel chastised by these kinds of people when they say, can you please explain to me why a good God does X? How can you, O oh man, say to me, who has no standard of righteousness, what is righteous? Do not be intimidated or taken in by such fools. Do not embrace, but rather reject the wisdom. Do not reject the wisdom and righteousness of God. 
Do not embrace the folly of those around you. And it begins quite small at times, doesn't it? It really begins by our remaining lax as it relates primarily to the moral law of God that we find in the Ten Commandments. Most importantly, the first table of the law of God. Is it no wonder that, it's, we, 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 is it no wonder that we now are very bad at keeping the second table of the law because we have as a society abandoned the first table of the law of God? Where are you and I taught how to worship and who is a God who is to be worshipped? Where? Is it in nature? Nope. It's in the house of God with God's people, covenant worship. In fact, parents, every voice, most, let me say it this way, most of the voices that your children hear when they are not in your presence and you're not controlling the narrative, as it were, is a voice that is tempting them to go away they ought not go. And the voice of God should loom louder and more sweetly in their ears and in their hearts and in their minds than those voices. And the place where that is done best, yes, it works in the home. But it is done in the presence of God's people. It's done when we gather together and God reminds us of his covenant faithfulness to us. And so one of the best ways to reject the folly of the world is to see that it is a system corrupted. And the best testimony that we have as a church is to show them a system that is not corrupted, but embraces the wisdom and beauty of God. And so hold fast to the one who has been revealed, the perfect word of God, the incarnate one, Jesus Christ, who is the way we actually escape the wrath. Embrace the true religion and righteousness of God and find salvation in him. Let's pray. Lord.